Hi, I'm Debbie Georgettis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about the politicizing of race relations, lies versus statistical facts, the reparations argument, ongoing new discussion, very important to understand, and last, Beto O'Rourke called Benjamin Netanyahu racist. Unbelievable. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. You may have read about the uh, woman we end up talking about a lot on this show, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is a Democrat member of Congress from New York. She's an avowed socialist, proud socialist Democrat. Uh, you know, she calls herself a, 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 a Dem- sorry, trying to fool with my camera here. Shouldn't be doing this. Okay. Uh, anyway, she tries to tell her, say she is a Democrat socialist. I just want to tell you what she is, um, what she had to say recently. It ties into race. And that was, she, she talked about the idea that when there was the, the, the unfortunate and horrific murders of the people in a mosque in New Zealand, in Christchurch, New Zealand, actually two mosques, horrible attack, people were murdered, and you know the world, uh, outcry of grief and outrage from the world. But following that event, a reporter asked President Trump, do you think there is a rise in white nationalism in this country, in the world? And he said that because the shooter uh, in that those attacks did identify himself as a white nationalist. By the way, he also identified himself as a socialist and said he doesn't agree with anything President Trump does policy-wise. So there you have it. But this, the killer, the you know, who is in custody in New Zealand, um, who killed 50 people in these these two different mosques. Uh, after that happened, the. Uh, you know, Democrats, the, the media, the, the left-wingers in this country were determined to try to tie his evil conduct to a rise in white supremacy or white nationalism. So Trump was asked about it. He, he, they asked him, a reporter asked him, do you see a rise in white nationalism as a threat around the world? President Trump's answer was, I don't really. I think it's a small group of people that have very, very serious problems. He also has said it was certainly a terrible thing. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez referred to that answer that President Trump gave to an to a, a reporter as a deliberate message to white supremacists. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tried to say because Trump would not agree that there was a rise in uh, in in racism and white nationalism in this world that Trump was signaling a message to white supremacists. And then she uh, tweeted and said, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, white supremacists committed the largest number of extremist killings in 2017. These are, these are her words. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that white supremacists committed the largest number of extremist killings in 2017. And the reason I want to talk about that today and the first five was because there is a mission ongoing now in America 
uh, among the left-wing media sources, which is most of the media, um, and the American left to raise and nurture and cultivate fear among people of color in this country that there's just white nationalism, white racism everywhere, that they are surely going to be um, you know, the victims themselves or might be the victims themselves. And then, of course, the Democrats are holding themselves up. We are the saviors. We are the preventers of this. So I want to share with you some real statistics unrelated to Alexandria Cortez's completely false statement to the world, to America, and tell you what the real facts are. And I should also tell you that the New York Times recently ran a timeline, ran, ran a story, an illustrated timeline of white extremist killings over the last nine years. And so they show, uh, they show the uh, killings over the last nine years and try to tie them to the source or cause with an idea that they are, they are piling on to the left-wing messaging that America and the world is full of white extremists. extremists. Okay, the war, and this is referring to 2017, so we're all talking about the same data. In 2017, the worst terror event, the most people killed was an incident in Somalia. We're talking about the world first, Somalia. In Somalia, there, were, there was a truck bomb outside of the Safari Hotel in Mogadishu, Somalia, that killed 580 people. This was an attack by radical Islamists, an attack by Muslims. It was, a, to be precise, it was an attack by a group called the Al-Shabaab, which was responsible for 97% of all of the 370 instances of extremist killings in Somalia in 2017. Just one country, radical Islam, responsible for three, for 97% of the 370 attacks in just one country. These are motivated by the teachings of Islam. So that was the most major terror event in 2017. Similar one, uh, ISIS, of the, uh, ISIS of the Sinai, this is in Egypt, slaughtered 312 people, including 27 children, on a mosque in Sinai during Friday prayers. Um, and that was, a, that was in, I don't know what month, in 2017. Also in Egypt, same year, 2017, on Palm Sunday, an extremist suicide bomber connected to, and they, their group they called ICE, it's just IS-Egypt, killed 30 Coptic Christians at church on Palm Sunday, coordinated with another killer, same day, who killed 16 people at a church in Alexandria. The first day of 2017, uh, there was an ISIS attack on a nightclub in Istanbul that killed 35 people. Again, that was that was actually an Uzbeki perpetrator um, driving his truck into um, a, and then also an Uzbeki uh, killer rammed a truck into a crowd of people in Stockholm, killing seven. Another ISIS militant, Yunus Abuyakob, let's just go with that ran a truck into a crowd of people in Barcelona, killing 15 people. I could go on and on and on and on, but the overwhelming number of violence in the world, the overwhelming number of people killed and instances that occur of violence in this world where innocent people are killed comes from the Islamic world, perpetrated by, by Muslims 
who are saying they're carrying out Islam attacks in the name of Islam. That's what the overwhelming majority is in the entire world of violent attacks. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's statement that, you know, this was a, um, that the, the uh, white supremacists committed the largest number of extremist killings of 2017 is unrelated to reality, unrelated to facts. But she says these things and you have to keep asking yourself why. Why does she work so hard? She and other Democrats, Democrats work so hard to convince the American people that white extremist, white supremacism, white extreme, extreme, wrong with me, extreme, extremists are such a huge problem in this world. It is truly a, you just have to ask yourself, and I have an answer for that I'm going to share with you in a moment. But the, the reason I'm raising all this is to say that this is extremely problematic that you have one of the most prominently quoted members of the United States Congress perfectly willing to go out on a limb, just completely fabricate, put out in a tweet as though it's somehow newsworthy because people will read it um, on the internet and, and, and believe it. It has, it has nothing to do with reality, nothing to do with facts. Don't get me wrong. Murder of other people by anybody is horrible. It is to be denounced. Murder by white supremacists is a horrible thing. The mosque killings in New Zealand were horrible things. The killings of the innocent people in the countries where I just read about, Somalia, Turkey, Egypt, all of those killings are equally horrific. It is not even a close question if you're trying to connect or attribute the thinking of the person involved, the race and thinking of the person involved, the single largest source of extremist murders in the world are those committed by Muslim extremists. That is what the facts are. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez not only lies about that stat, but she also takes the opportunity to take a shot at President Trump and claim he's somehow signaling racists in this country by saying he does not see a rise in white nationalism in the world. You know, if she wanted to dispute that and she wanted to talk about facts, she could lay out some facts. She could discuss the pros and cons. She could list a citation. She doesn't do that. She doesn't want to have a discussion about the facts. She wants to have a basis for attacking President Trump and trying to attach the label of racist to him because he didn't give the answer that she and other leftists wanted want to have the president say. I'll tell you something else that happened with this Ocasio-Cortez quote. She's, she's kind of playing off of the Southern Poverty Law Center, the left-wing group in America that's actually in deep trouble these days, but Southern Poverty Law Center holds itself out as a monitor of hate in this country, label in this world, in fact, labels people and organizations claiming they're racist, puts those people on their hate group list, and of course, gets a lot of publicity and attention uh, negative attention for the people they list as members of hate groups or individuals who they're deeming to be haters. And they are very um, footloose and fancy free with respect to how they label things and who they include on their lists and who they don't bother mentioning on their lists. But right now, the Southern Poverty Law Center um, is, has, trying, has been trying to also push the Democrats' left-wing left Democrat narrative that America is full of racism, that there's just, you know, racism around every corner. And so they had a, um, they have a quote out, the Southern Poverty Law Center had a quote out talking about 
a nearly 50% increase in white nationalist hate groups between 2017 and 2018. And folks, you know what? That statistic that's saying a nearly 50, that's like saying twice as many. Okay. <laughs> they're not saying in absolute numbers. They're just saying, you know, they think there were more than they used to be. The simple fact about America is that white supremacy, white supremacists are a tiny, tiny fringe group. Everybody condemns them. Both political parties, everybody condemns them. And as a matter, as a matter of just irony about this all, Southern Poverty Law Center, the founder of that other Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, Morris Dees, was recently fired, accused by his uh, his own female employees at Southern Poverty Law Center, sexually harassing female workers and making racist remarks. This paragon of this judge of all others, this labeler of all others, had to fire their own founder because he makes racist comments at work. A little bit of hypocrisy there. And Southern Poverty Law Center, in case you doubt my characterization of them, they actually called Dr. Ben Carson, who is, if you, I'm sure you know who that is, but he was a presidential candidate. He's black. They, Southern Poverty Law Center, labeled Dr. Ben Carson a white supremacist. I mean, just beyond idiotic. They had to pay an enormous settlement um, against a British Muslim journalist, Mahid Nawaz, $3.4 million for labeling him a Muslim as being uh, an anti-Muslim extremist. I mean, they, 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 what I'm getting at is Southern Poverty Law Center is not a fact-finding group. They are not neutral. They have the left-wing narrative in mind, which is always to label people who don't agree with the uh, left-wing worldview, to label those people as racist, to, to label people who won't agree with anything they want them to agree to, to find some ugly label to attach to them. So they have lost much credibility. They're being sued by many organizations for falsely labeling them as hate groups. And the last point I want to make about this big, this before, because I, I want to talk about reparations mainly today, but on the subject of race relations in this country, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the American left work very hard to stir up fear about white nationalism and white supremacists in this country never, ever admitting that even though, and we all admit, you know, some, these groups do exist, there are individuals like that, never, ever admitting that the people who perpetrate evil things, white supremacists who do bad things, they never acknowledge that that's a minute portion, a tiny portion of the American population. You never hear anyone on the left acknowledge that white supremacism is condemned by everyone, by conservatives, by liberals, by blacks, by whites, by people of every race, ethnicity, and national origin, roundly rejected in this country. AOC cannot say that out loud. She can't admit that out loud because it defeats the purpose for which she makes these statements. She makes these statements to stir up fear resentment and division in our country to stir up people. She never will say, you know, white supremacism, white racism is, is horrible, but it's, you know, it's a tiny portion of America. She can't say that because she doesn't want people listening to her to believe that she needs to have minority Americans suspicious, resentful, and fearful 
because that is the basis of her of her and the Democrat Party's political power is keeping Americans divided and suspicious of each other. By contrast, whenever there is an Islamic attack, an attack conducted by someone who is Muslim, who is saying, I'm doing this on behalf of Islam, who's yelling Allahu Akbar as he or she is killing people or blowing them up or shooting them, everyone on the left is quick to say, you can't judge all Muslims by the conduct of these, these violent few. These violent few are in fact not representative of all Muslims, and that's true. But somehow the left can ignore all of the, they, they can uh, silo the conduct by people who are engaged in Islamic violence much more, uh, just much larger number of percent uh, in devastation around the world they're, they're very able, very quickly able to denounce those attacks as the works of extremists, has nothing to do with Islam. You can't, you know, you can't lump all people together. You can't lump all Muslims together. They never do that. They never do that when they're talking about the conduct of white supremacists or white nationalists, whatever term, white supremacists, let's just stick with that term. They never will do that because it, it hurts their argument. It cuts away at their argument, what they're trying to do which is to create fear among people of color in this country. They could serve a very noble purpose if they would speak up and say, you know what, as a matter of fact, um, these are horrible things. And basically no one, you know, they are roundly denounced by every single element of our society. And they are, but, but they can't do that. And I, the reason I really want to, so I guess I'm kind of wrapping up my first five. I do want to say it's so important as we head toward the 2020 elections to keep track of to remember what the left is trying to do to our country. They're trying to divide us by race. They're trying to make people suspicious of each other. They're trying to make people in this country, people of color, suspicious of other people. And this is a, an insidious and ongoing and ugly effort on the part of the radical left in this country. It should be denounced by many people. It should be denounced by by people who recognize that our country, while not perfect, is a f country full of noble, good people of every race, ethnicity, and national origin who try very hard to treat each other with respect and dignity. That's what America really is. And this is why I'd love to hear the left begin to acknowledge. Not so sure that's going to happen. But I want to turn to the topic of reparations. You likely saw that and, and re the, uh, there was a, an event put on by Al Sharpton. Um, he still calls himself Reverend Al Sharpton. Um, and he had his big NAN, his National Action Network and NAN convention um, in April, just, um, just this past Friday um, in New York City. And at that conference, Al Sharpton had all the Democrat candidates, or as many as were um, wanted to come, I guess, but the Democrat candidates running for president had them present to ask, what do you think about reparations? And I want to mention something about reparations here that is, um, that is kind of the backdrop of this. And you'll hear, we'll play Al Sharpton in a moment, and you'll hear uh, what he was, um, what he's talking about. But there is a Texas uh, U.S., a member of the U.S. Congress from Texas, um, a, a black woman named Dr. Sheila, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee. She introduced a bill in the U.S. House called uh, H.R. 40, 
called the Commission to Study and Develop Reparations Proposals for African Americans Act. She's basically uh, proposing the creation of a commission to study the, the idea of reparations, to study the idea of whether or not, you know, we should have, uh, we should engage in some effort, a move toward making reparations in this country. And basically that's referring to the idea that has been put forth by many Democrats over decades, the idea that somehow we should have a national payment made out of tax dollars from the federal government to individuals in America who are the descendants of American slaves. So they are in our country because their ancestors were brought to America to be slaves. And the argument being that the vestiges of slavery, the, on, the ongoing impact of slavery, and they would say of you know, segregation and all of that, the, the things that were occurring in America prior to the Civil Rights Act and just general discrimination in society, all that together should mean that the American government, our government, should pay reparations, pay money to people um, who are descendants of American slaves. So that is the reparations thing. Sheila Jackson Lee is now front and center on the uh, Democrats' um, agenda for both the presidential candidates in 2020, and if they were to get a Democrat candidate to win, um, it would be a serious policy discussion in America, at least as long as the Democrats hold the U.S. House. So I want to talk about this reparations idea. And, you know, I'll tell you, folks, these are these are very tender topics. These are these are hard to talk about. And I have dear friends. I've had conversations with people of all racial backgrounds, political backgrounds, um, kind of, you know, education backgrounds. And I hear a lot of different thoughts about it. It's it's not a it's not a simple question. It's just not a simple question. And um I mean, I know I think the answer is, but there's a lot of um, sensitivity to it. And there's a lot of notion of it not so much being the money, although the money is the goal, but the money as the validation, the art, the um, agreement, the acknowledgement in America, kind of a, a broad societal acknowledgement that it is has been very difficult for the descendants of American slaves who continued to be the victims of a grievous unfairness during the time of segregation, and they would say throughout you know America's history until today. And so there are people who are more arguing when they, they want to talk to me about it. They aren't so much talking about money, although they want that, but they're really talking about the idea of, you know, they want to hear America agree that there was a, an ongoing flowing harm to uh, people of uh, African-Americans in this country flowing from slavery, flowing from segregation, that somehow America still hasn't made it right, still hasn't kind of done a group uh, acknowledgement, a group um, recognition and an effort to try to correct the situation. This is really what uh, is behind the hearts of least people I've spoken to. It's a bigger issue than just, you know, how much money and when and, and when do we get paid and, and you know, over what period of time. But this reparations battle, part of what the uh, Sheila Jackson Lee bill is talking about, it's not just money, but it's, it's a uh, talk about studying the commission to a uh, commission to study the whole issue. What's the best way to kind of square things up, to make things fairer, to get things back on track in America for those who support reparations. So now we turn to our um I wouldn't say he's our friend, but Reverend Al Sharpton, the founder of the National Action Network, 
He held a convention in the Sheraton Times Square Hotel in New York last Friday, had several of the Democrat candidates were present there. And there was first I want to play a quote. This is a little interaction between Al Sharpton and Beto O'Rourke, who's running for president. He's here. He's from here in the great state of Texas or from the great state of Texas. But let me have you hear what he had to say. Your fellow Texan, Sheila Jackson Lee, has proposed a commission to study reparations. If that passes and you are president of the United States, would you sign that bill? Yes. I, I had a chance to, to speak with and just listen to and learn from Brian Stevenson in Montgomery, Alabama, and, and learn from his work on uh, working with the community to build a memorial to justice and to peace. And he said, foundational to reparations is the word repair. Foundational to repair is the truth. And until all Americans understand that civil rights are not just those victories that I began with at the outset of my comments, but the injustices that have been visited and continue to be visited on people, we will never get the change that we need to live up to the promise of this country. So absolutely, I would sign that into law. Okay, one thing I want to point out, see, that's what he's talking about, what Beto Rourke is talking about there is, you know, this is a, um, you know, this is not just about money, it's about acknowledgement, it's about admitting the truth, it's about coming forward and being more, um, America more acknowledging what flows from the damage uh, of slavery and, and the, the vestiges of slavery um, through time. I will tell you that the if people want to have a commission and talk about, you know, the vestiges of racism and all that, uh, then then that might be a good thing. You might have people say things that you, you know, share perspectives. You might hear things you didn't know about before. But the idea in America, a the practical idea of having the United States government collect taxes because the government has no money. American government the state governments, no government has any money. They're not money-making operations. The money the American government has comes from taxpayers. So this is a this will be a quest to get taxpayers to pay their hard-earned money into Washington so they can decide who gets reparations and how much and for how long. And and I mean the list of questions that are that would come up are and these are not in the slightest cynical questions. These are this is a, the reality of the complexity of it. If you really think you're going to try to do this, for example, um, if you had ancestors, if your family for, you know, came to America long after slavery was over. So you're a taxpayer, you're a, you're a white taxpayer. Do you pay into a system that's going to pay people when your family, your ancestors in America were not slave owners? You didn't have ancestors in America at that time. What do you do? Because there were actually black slave owners. So what do you do if you were the descendant of a black slave owner, but you're also maybe the descendant of black slaves who pays, who do you pay in and you receive? I mean, there's a, the uh, list of questions that you could go on, go consider are, are really, um, are really quite, quite a I mean, they're not just smart aleck. They're not cavalier questions. They're earnest questions about, if reparations is about fairness, how do you make this fair, given we are now in the year 2019, slavery ended in 1865, so you have, you know, we're, we're well over 150 years past, 
And yet we're going to say that money paid by people working hard today is going to be given to Washington to give to other people. I mean, among the many genuine, earnest, uh, non-cynical questions, uh, what if you were, uh, your ancestor was a free black slave? I mean, was it black slave, but who was freed? So didn't, you know, didn't have the entire uh, slave experience. Um, what do you do with people who are of mixed background, people whose dad or grandparent may have been a, the descendant of a slave, but who on the mother's side, they were, they were descendants of the slave owners. What happens to them? Do, do mixed race people get, get reparations? Um, when, what about if you're, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. What if you are a black entrepreneur in this country, an extremely successful person who's used the free market system and become successful, do you still get reparations from people paying taxes who have less money than you do, but they pay taxes to the government so you get paid, even though it does not appear to the average person that you are suffering from the vestiges of slavery. Slavery. If you're a millionaire, if you're a billionaire, do you still get reparations or you cut it off at some income level or some net worth value? Very, very complex things. And I got to tell you the other thing that is that, I mean, this is a, this will be, I'm, I'm sorry to say, it's going to be an ongoing discussion. And I, you know, I think there's a, I think there's a rightness to the idea of trying to listen to each other and trying to talk to each other. And, but I, I will say that I think I am very, very suspicious of the mission of the American left in talking about reparations now. They have raised it several times throughout history. I think they have no intention of following through. I don't think if any of those candidates gets elected president, they would even think of pushing through reparations because it is an extremely divisive issue. It is fraught with potential for mischief, unfairness, and true division in this country. I think it is a ploy. It's maybe not a ploy by Al Sharpton, but it is a ploy by the leftists in this country to float the idea of reparations, understanding perfectly well it is not palatable to the vast majority of American people. The American people are not going to accept it. They're not going to agree. There's going to, there would be a major rebellion if people thought this actually was going to become law. And you talk about if you're seeking fairness, what about people who came to this country and were also the victims, not of slavery, but, you know, the example a lot of people give when the Irish came to America. The Irish came because of the potato famine and they're in New York City and they have the signs. You can see them in museums. No Irish need apply. Irish not welcome. Do they, what about they're getting reparations? What about people in this country who are, um, you know, who have come here illegally and they are of a Hispanic or Mexican background? And they ultimately get citizenship at some point. What about their struggle? What about their, their argument that they were treated unfairly? I know that the African-American experience in American history is unique. It is unique. There is no other comparison to some other group in America like the African-American experiment experience. You know, but you could, but you can find all sorts of groups who can come up with genuine, legitimate arguments about unfairness toward them as a group and trying to make a system, a brand new piece of legislation that's somehow going to make everything right is not only impossible, it's impossible on a, on a logistical and practical basis, but it's also impossible on a cultural or societal basis. 
too many people have grievances about past unfairness to their people, to their cultures, to their uh, to whatever their ethnicity or race is. Too many people have arguments about not being the, the source or the problem that caused slavery. They had nothing to do with it. And, you know, I, I so I get back to my point. I think that the American left realizes this. I think many in the left realize that reparations are never going to happen because it's a fr just fraught with difficulties for uh, and, and challenges from the American people about fairness and about real justice. But I th so this is why it seems especially such an evil ploy to me because the left knows this. This is a this is a mission of the Democrats to shore up the black voting base. That's what I think the, the mission for reparations is. It is a, a mission of the American left to try to shore up the black voting base in the face of things like you have Blexit going on, the Candace Owens movement to try to inspire people to leave the American left. You have more examples of the, um, the uh, successes of the Trump administration in going forward with, with criminal justice reform, unlike previous presidents, including President Obama, would not do. You have the lowest black unemployment rate in, a, in American history under President Trump. You have great employment numbers, a booming economy, a president reaching out to try to help people who are wronged uh, by the criminal justice system. This is, this is a rough time for Democrats. They, they, they need, they're very worried. They see these, this reality on the ground and they're worried about their party's ability to hold on to the African-American vote in this country. So I think this reparations is just a ploy. Last point on reparations, I want to hit one other topic, but last point on reparations is this. Of all the presidential candidates who were asked about it, and, and virtually all of them, Democrat presidential candidates, have said in some way or another they're open to it or they support it or they would do it. But Bernie Sanders kind of takes the cake on this. And I have to tell you, I, I was kind of unsurprised, by, but yet surprised. I don't know what to, I mean, it was an amazing thing because he was asked about reparations. In 2016, he was against them. 2016, when he was running, nah, I can't really do that. Now he's for them. Whatever, he's allowed to change his mind, I guess. But he talked about the idea that instead of having just a, uh, a one-time reparations, we need to have his term ongoing reparations. Like now it's not good enough to have a one-time, you know, calculated adjustment somehow of a redistribution of wealth. He's talking about ongoing and, and he was pressed, he was being interviewed, he was pressed, you know, well, what do you mean by that? And he kept parroting different candidates and saying, and he, he couldn't get clear what he meant, but it's kind of consistent with his socialist mindset, which is a perpetual redistribution by the government of wealth. And so, I mean, I can see where he's coming from, or he's probably coming from, hey, he, you know, he's a socialist. He thinks the government ought to redistribute wealth. And he thinks the, um, so this reparations idea might be another way that he can permanently support uh, reparations, um, permanently support redistributing wealth by just saying, yeah, we'll do reparations, we'll make it permanent. So, you know, I, I have to say, as I say, these are tender and tough issues. I think many people in our country they, they don't want to have a conversation. I will say, I don't, you know, Sheila Jackson Lee and some of her supporters are saying, we're not just talking about money. They are talking about money, but they are talking about, you know, the conversation, recognition, understanding each other. And, you know, I, um, I, I think if that's what they want to urge, 
then they ought to think about things they really want to have us talk about. But I just think that the um, the effort to uh, raise reparations, because um, there will ultimately be, there's no answer to, and you can have conversations and conversations and conversations and not really get anywhere. There's no real outcome that they could accept, except the payment of reparations, except tax dollars sent around to people uh, who are who are uh, get to fall in the victim category, taxes paid. And by the way, everyone pays into the taxes. So did you ever think about this? People who pay to who work and pay taxes will then receive reparations, which is a little bit of their money coming back to them. But this is a, this is a um, it's it's more of a societally divisive issue than it is anything that can actually make the playing field fair. My last point on reparations is this: if we were ever to agree to an actual financial reparations mission an actual, uh, you know, division of money, deciding who gets what, you know, putting together the list, who qualifies, who doesn't. And we actually did it. If we actually did it, there would be no end to the clamor from the left that America is still a racially unjust society. Reparations would not end anything. It would not end the, uh, it would not end the laments of the Al Sharptons. It would not end the, um, in fact, it would bring advocacy for more reparations. Well, this wasn't enough. Look what happened. We did this, but still look at the divisions in our society. Still look at this. Uh, and so you would never, you'd have no end of the issue, no end of the idea of using government to uh, redistribute wealth. You have a demand for more money, more payments, uh, and round two, it would never, ever end. And this is another reason, even to get started with the idea of passing money around to make things fair it is a really unfortunate and, and just unwise idea. In fact, if you really care about poverty in the African-American community, I would suggest that people should get behind someone like Star Parker. She was on the show last week or two weeks ago. Uh, she's the founder of CURE, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education. Her mission, instead of pushing for reparations, her mission is to help lower income communities, especially black communities in this country, to use the resources given to them by America, the constitution, Christianity, hard work, moving forward. Her mission actually lifts people up. It actually solves, it begins working towards solving the problem. It inspires people to become self-reliant and therefore and therefore secure and therefore on the path to at least economic stability and perhaps even great economic success. But it uses the tools America gives everyone instead of a backward look at reparations, which looks at, tries to review 150 years of history and decide what was fair, when was it fair, when is it not fair, which you could never, you'll, we'll never get to a solution. We'll never get to a solution. And I really do feel, I think it's incumbent on, um, it would be wonderful if there'd be a few leaders in the Democrat party just saying reparations are not workable. There's no way to make it just. It will just create a new injustice that people are not going to be happy with and really encourage people instead to be forward looking, to find ways to help their, uh, their, fellow Americans find a path to success in America. I like the Star Parker path. And the last topic for today 
is, you know, this whole effort to uh, just turn to race at all times to call everything racial. I noticed something else and I just, I, I'm just so troubled by this in our society. I feel like, you know, you look at Candace Owens, for example, Candace Owens, just brilliant success, part of Turning Point USA, been in the show a couple times, uh, you know, just a really, she's a leader. She created this Blexit movement, the black and Latina exit from the Democrat party or from American leftism. She, one of her most, of all the YouTubes she has done, she's done tons and tons and tons and tons of YouTubes and little you know, reports from here and there, wherever she's, wherever she's um, speaking or wherever she's doing, she's just really prolific and putting her thoughts out on YouTube. But the YouTube that launched her career, the YouTube that made Pete, made her a commonly known household name that launched her success was the YouTube she did where she talked about, uh, she lived, I think in Philadelphia at that time or New York, wherever she lived, got up in the morning, went to the gym, a white guy handed me my towel as I went in to check in, got my towel. And then a Hispanic guy showed me how to use the weight machine. And then I went to Starbucks and, you know, a white guy waited on me or a black guy waited on me and he gave me my coffee. And then I came home and her point was most of America functions very, very well. People in people of various races, ethnicities and national origins interact all day long in the mass massive majority of America all over this country in big cities and small towns and everywhere, mostly in America, people interact with each other, people of different races, ethnicities and national origins, and we get along just fine. Candace Owens has been among the ones, and that that very uh, YouTube she did was, I mean, it's one of the ones she describes, I heard her talk about it at um, a talk she came to Texas to give. You know, she went to bed that night having done this YouTube about, you know, she was basically saying she was tired of the left constantly arguing that America is a racist nation. She's sick of hearing it. So she did that YouTube to say, here's my experience. You know, Hispanic guy, African-American guy, white guy, everybody's nice. Get along, go to, go to the gym, go to the Starbucks, come home. And she got up the next morning and discovered that her video had gone viral overnight. And I won't estimate the numbers, I don't remember, but it's in the millions and millions and millions of people around the world had seen it. And the reason people loved it, because it was so affirmational. It was so affirming. People of all backgrounds were saying, yes, this is the America I know. This is the America I see, the America I live. They liked hearing someone say, yeah, you know what, this, this is my, what my life experience is like too. My life experience is like what she's talking about. So. I, um, I love that, but back to people endlessly having to uh, make racial accusations against others. You may remember the name David Hogg. He's a high school student, and he was the one who, um, he's become a, pro, a really outspoken advocate for gun control. He was in, I believe it was the Florida high school shooting, which of course are all horrific. He was in that one. He's become an advocate for uh, gun control. So he's out there advocating for gun control, which, you know, it's, it's, um, that's his position, but he yesterday or, or this past week, I guess, uh, and I hadn't I had not heard about these, but there were three traditionally and I guess very old historic black churches in the South that were all burned, I think, to, on the same day. I mean, so it appears to be arson, three black churches, um, and they were the um, St. Mary Baptist Church in Port Bar um, and then the Green, the Greater Union Baptist Church and Opelousas. 
and the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church south of Opelousas. Um, yeah, they're all born within a short period of time. The first one, St. Mary Baptist, March 26th. The Greater, Greater Union Baptist, April 2nd, and Mount Pleasant Baptist, April 4th. So, of course, the authorities are looking into this. Louisiana State Fire Marshal and people looking into it saying, obviously, looks to be arson, looks suspicious. We don't have, you know, we don't know the answer yet, but we're investigating. So, obviously, horrific things. These, no, one was in, no one was hurt. There were no one in the buildings at the time, but the churches themselves were burned. Obviously, it assume, everyone thinks it's arson. Seems to, have, seems to have been arson. They're investigating. They will hopefully find someone and they will charge him. But David Hogg, this, you know, gun control advocate um, kid, accused President Trump of supporting terrorism against black churches. I mean, this is the level of idiocy in this country that the accusation of racism about everything, this is the, the level it's gotten to. David Hogg accused President Trump of supporting terrorism against black churches on Monday because Trump had not tweeted about the three historically black churches that recently burned down in Louisiana. And I mean, the level you almost, I almost hate to bring it up on this show, except to say the level of moral idiocy that has become acceptable among left-wingers, acceptable among, on the American left, acceptable among people who say they're advocating for left-wing views, he has no idea what Trump thinks about that or much of anything else. But he feels perfectly free to accuse President Trump of encouraging, supporting, supporting terrorism against black churches because Trump hadn't put a tweet out about these churches. Now, I mean, I'm sure he got this guy, David Hogg, got criticized by a few people. But the point is, we, we are hurting our society. We are hurting our conversation, our culture, our ability to listen to each other when we spend so much time readily accusing somebody else of racism, which is what David Hogg was doing. He could have said, gee, sure wish President Trump would tweet about this. I'd like to have more people understand this. He thinks he has the right, this David Hogg, to attribute racism and the encouragement of racial terrorism against the president based on Trump not tweeting. And this is what happens when the left works so hard to plant the seeds of racial suspicion in this country over and over and over. And on the last shot about racism in today's show, so Beto O'Rourke, Democrat contender for president of the United States, though I saw a couple of shots of his, uh, his events in Iowa, you know, he's up there in Iowa trying to, because everyone focuses on Iowa first, you know, first in the nation where they have their primary, their caucus, and um, there's like nobody there. I mean, he went to a very, very small, it was an event for him and, and uh, you know, didn't have much of a crowd, so maybe he's not really going to catch on, but he's viewed by many to be a, a top contender. So today, uh, today in the world, they are, there are elections in Israel, the country of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, is running again. And, you know, Benjamin, Benjamin Netanyahu is a, you know, well-liked by conservatives. Netanyahu loves Trump. Trump and Netanyahu get along. Netanyahu is a conservative leader. He's a member of what would be the conservative party in Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, and so he's got, just like in America, you have the press that is left wing. They attack him all the time. You have the left wing politicians attacking him all the time. 
he's running for re-election and next and the election is today. So Beto O'Rourke, instead of just, he started out with a quote saying, you know, yeah, Israel's our most important ally. And, you know, say we, um, we, you know, they really matter to us, blah, blah, blah. But he ended up calling Netanyahu a racist. And I'll tell you folks, if anything else Beto O'Rourke ever said warranted or even inspired you slightly to consider him as competent and capable of serving of president of the United States, you gotta know this is, this is a disqualifyingly idiotic statement by Beto O'Rourke. Israel is a tiny speck on a map surrounded by countries, Arabic countries, Muslim countries, numerous of whom would happily, happily destroy the entire existence of Israel. And Netanyahu is strong enough to fight for Israel. And he's called by Beto O'Rourke a racist. O'Rourke couldn't be more out of touch with political reality. He just told you right there everything you need to know. He is politically immature. He defaults to the racist allegation because that's what the left tells him wins. And this guy is no way qualified to be president of the United States. I'm Debbie Georgias. This is America Can We Talk. Come back Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Talk to you tomorrow. America, can we talk? Truth about America.